All right, we're going to talk today about lies that your kids are probably going to believe, even though nobody's directly telling them these lies. These are things that we absorb from culture, because nowadays, unlike in the past, like if you live in a farm culture back in like rural wherever, 200 years ago, your kids are exposed to this much of the world's culture. But now it's in the cell phones and it's in the music and it's in the YouTubers that they follow and it's in the TV shows that they watch. And we're consuming so much that I've started calling this world culture because it's like sort of like planetary, you know, internet supplied culture. And to talk to you about the lies that your kids will believe, the things that they will swallow, we're gonna we're gonna talk to uh, Elizabeth Urbanowicz, who's gonna be going through these specific lies. She has a lot of experience dealing with these types of things. She'll tell more about her experience later. But I thought first, just say welcome, Elizabeth. This is the Bible Thinker crowd, and Bible Thinker crowd. This is Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on today, Pastor Mike. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to this. Let's just jump straight into it. Then we'll talk more about awesome. you and the program you've got and all that other stuff. Um, what is the first lie that you've experienced with kids that you've dealt with? Yes. So lie number one, and what I would say is most foundational that we have to deal with with our kids is the lie that if I feel it, it must be true. Or just this lie that truth is subjective. And as I started working with kids and really helping them start to think critically and start to think biblically, I was shocked to discover how deeply ingrained this lie is. And the more I have worked with parents and pastors and Christian educators, the more I've seen how shocked they are in not even understanding that our kids have just absorbed this lie from culture. When I first started creating resources for others, I started getting monthly and now weekly emails from others saying, oh my goodness, like I had no idea that here I am teaching my kids the truth. We talk about truth all the time and they think that the truth isn't true for everyone. Because one of the activities that I give people to do is just whether it's with the kids at home or at church or in Christian school is just to ask them the question, is the truth true for everyone? Is the truth true for everyone? And then give the kids a sticky note and have them write down either yes or no, and then a justification for why. Is it true for everyone or is it not? And why do you think that? And parents and pastors and teachers are always shocked that usually more than half the kids in their care say, no, the truth isn't true for everyone. It depends on who you are. And yeah, so to, just to pause you for a second and tell people a couple things real quick, like do this, if you can do this with your kids, no pressure. You just ask them and they have them write down their answer, walk them through this. Um, the these are the kinds of things you don't know they're believing because they're not expressed outward, but then they really affect worldview. And so we're, we're walking them through this. And Elizabeth has got a lot of experience. This is why for you guys, I wanted her to come and talk to you about this. She's dealt with hundreds and hundreds of kids and she's actually developed a program for teaching worldview to kids, which by the way, is not easy. Okay, I do all kinds of thinking biblically stuff, but the idea of teaching it to like kids under like, 10 under seven like this starts to get a lot more difficult and you have a special skill set that's why we brought you on here so please uh please continue Yes. And so usually the older the child is when we start to work with them on this, just the more deeply ingrained it is and the more reformative work that we have to do. Where if we can begin with three, four, five, six, seven-year-olds about thinking about the concept of truth, we can be much more formational rather than reformational in our work. And a lot of times as Christians, it's tricky to cover this concept of truth because truth isn't necessarily outlined directly in scripture. It's just everywhere assumed just because up, you know, 
150 years ago, no matter what worldview you adhered to, you thought that truth was true for everyone, that truth was objective, that there were absolute truths out there. Where now our culture just believes something so completely different. So a lot of times all we do is we have our kids memorize John 14, 6. You know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're like, okay, there, we did it. We covered truth with kids. We're, you know, when we look at that passage, Jesus is talking about him being a true representation of who God is because he is God. You know, he's showing his disciples who the Father is. But then when we stop and think about it and think like, okay, well, what is truth? How do I actually get my kids to understand that truth is objective? That what we need to do is we need to help them discern the difference between objective truths and subjective preferences. And, you know, those of you who are into the world of theology and apologetics and philosophy, you probably know the correspondence theory of truth backwards and forwards, or this might be a new thing for you, that truth is that which corresponds with reality. And, you know, you say that to a five-year-old and like, you might as well have been speaking in a foreign language to them. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) But if we can break it down in really simple terms and just say, truth is what is real. Truth is what is real. You know, that's what it means for something to line up with reality. And with little kids, if you can get their bodies involved, that's a great thing. And just have them, you know, like lift up their arms and shout truth. (laughs) You know, every time you say a sentence that's true. For a little bit older kids, it's great just to do a practical activity that can help them see that truth is what is real. Usually what I'll do with kids is if I'm working with younger kids, I'll send them out on a treasure hunt and I'll give them directions, usually hide like candy or chocolate somewhere around and say, okay, I have a couple different sets of directions. Your set of directions might be true directions or your set of directions might not be true directions. Let's see what happens. And then, you know, all the kids go out and only one or one group of them finds the treasure or the prize because only one set of directions was true. And then debrief and talk about why didn't everybody find this? Well, let's look at your directions. Oh my goodness, your directions sent you to the completely wrong place. Like, why is that? And so then they didn't show me what was real. They didn't show me the truth so that kids get the importance of it. If you're working with older kids, you can have them work on a recipe. Just give them a recipe. Give one person the correct recipe. Mm-hmm. Other people, a recipe that's like completely off that's going to end up disgusting. And just so that they can see that truth is lines up with reality. Truth is what is real. So that's just an easy thing for us as adults to be able to do with kids. But then we want to dive in even deeper and we want to look at, okay, so is truth objective or is it subjective? And so these terms can be confusing, but I just like to say, think of grammar. Okay. The object of a sentence, if I say Tim kicked the ball, the ball is the object. It's outside of Tim where Tim is the subject. So a subjective claim is anything that can be changed by my preference or my emotions, where an objective claim is anything that it doesn't matter what I think, feel, or believe about it, it can't be changed. So like an easy activity, I say bake cookies with kids or you know, anything that they'll enjoy. And then talk about what are some things about these cookies that are preferences. Like I'll always give kids the example, I'm super weird, I don't like chocolate. Like if it's a choice between chocolate and broccoli, like I'm gonna choose the broccoli every time, which That's I know- very is, disappointing. I know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> my mom's like, I don't know how you're my daughter. Um, but I'll tell kids, 
like these chocolate chip cookies, like I would say, ew, gross. Like that's my subjective preference about it. Or you might say yum, or you might say they're too small, they're too big. And just come up with a list of things. What are things about these cookies that are preferences? They're going to change from person to person. And then write a list of what are things that are objective, that are not going to change. Like my mom is severely allergic to gluten. And no matter how much she might think, feel, or believe that certain cookies don't have gluten in them, her preference, her feelings, her beliefs don't change the fact either the cookies have gluten or they don't like she can't internally change that. Um, That's a great example. That's just a great way to get kids to start thinking, okay, what is something that's objective? What's something that's subjective? And then we can just begin in our everyday conversations. Oh, you know, like we're talking about this movie, you know, like this decision that the character made or, you know, like this claim, the scientific claim or, you know, like what you're learning in math. Is that something that's objective? Like it's either true or it's false or is it subjective? Like your beliefs can change it. And this is so foundational and so important. So wait, help us help us grab how important this is, because um, maybe give us some examples of if a kid falls for this, if I feel it, it must be true. How does that affect their views of things like God, uh, religion, other things that, you know, when the rubber meets the road, what are the symptoms of the wrong thinking here? Yeah, that's a great question because this is a lot of times why we don't even realize it because sometimes the symptoms are very subtle and they might not rise to the surface until we actually have an intentional question. And so one one thing that's just that will just automatically arise out of this is just the belief that the Bible is true for some people and not for others, or Christianity is true for some people and not others, and not really understanding the objective nature of the claims about Christianity. Like Christianity, I don't follow it because it makes me feel good. Like if it's false, like we need to be out of here. <laughs> you know, it's Christianity is of no value at all if it's false. And then when we think about things like morality or we think about things like gender and sexuality or concepts like justice, if our kids just believe, you know, like that all truth is subjective or that truth changes from person to person, they are not going to believe that there is some kind of objective moral code that we are all <laughs> required to follow or you know that there is that there are certain things that we as humans need to do and so this is just going to permeate yeah. every area of life if we don't actually take the time to directly address it yeah you know i heard a, in a poll that was done not too long ago uh, amongst um was it gen z or it was it the, or was it the generation before them the millennials anyway it was the the poll was basically asking them um, if, you know, are you a Christian? And for those who said, yes, I'm an, I'm an evangelical Christian, they asked them, do you think it's right to proselytize, to tell other people mm-hmm. about your faith, to try to convert them, to make them become Christian? And the majority of them said no. Wow. And I think that is a subtle symptom of lie number yeah. one. That there's this idea of like, well, yes, it's true for me, but I'm going to let you live in your own sort of constructed reality. And this is always really bothered me, but I've seen it forever. Like my whole life, I've seen it where people deal with math in a very objective way. They deal with things like business and school and everything's objective until it comes to religious values. And now it's all like make-believe. And that seems to be like up until the point of death, we act like our decisions matter. And then, and then after death, when we stand before God or whatever happens, depending on your beliefs, you know, you may think something different happens. We suddenly go into la la land where we act like whatever you believe, that's what happens. Mm. But we've never thought this anywhere else in life. Like I've never thought with the gluten example, 
that that somebody who's who has a, a gluten problem could just eat gluten as long as they believe it's not gluten, then that's fine for them. And and so yeah, th this is something that's multi generational. It's not just today, yeah. but it's but it's affecting Christian youth so much more because they're being raised up with more exposure to this that sort of thinking. Yeah. Right. And that's, I mean, that's something we'll get into a little bit more later, but if we can help just set this framework of the difference between objective claims and subjective claims, that's one way that we can really help them see suddenly, you know, that in this religious or spiritual realm, it's not everything is subjective because when we look at Christianity, I mean, Christianity makes a whole bunch of objective claims, you know, and it's not just like, oh, well, maybe that's true for you. It's like, no, this is either true or false. And if it's true, I need to stake my life on it. And if it's false, I need to find another worldview. So as you said, you know, so important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big, big, big stuff. So do you find that when you're working with kids on this and you bring these questions and these examples, does it does it turn the lights on? Does it does it cause them to say, "Wow, I, I get it," and then when they start asking questions about, you know, tense culturally tense religious topics, are they able to transfer the you know the principles about objective truth over to those issues? I found that that yes, across the board, it does work that they are able to translate them over. The younger that you start, the easier that it is simply because they've had less time to absorb this false lie from culture. Like a lot of parents that use my curriculum, especially if they don't start until their kids are older, will write in and be like, okay, I think we're going to have to go through that whole truth unit again because my kids still doesn't get it. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, parents that start when they're four years old, the kids get it right away. There's really no confusion between objective and subjective. And that's something I saw when I use this in my own classroom, that all of a sudden my students were able to translate this into every area of life. Like they would bring a book up to me and be like, hey, like this character just said this, talking about like their decisions didn't really matter if it was different than someone else because, you know, everything's different for everybody. But oh my goodness, like that's not the way that truth works. And it was so exciting for me to see like, okay, they're taking this concept, you know, this foundational concept we've learned, and now they're applying it to every area of life. Right, right. Yeah, there's kind of a, I don't know if you deal with this specifically, there's kind of this thing that at least that seems to be the case to me, which is that people feel like um, belief has like reality making properties. Mm. <laughs> that, that the yes. fact that I believe something can make it true. And this is in some of the more word of faith churches, this is kind of a preaching point that I think is, you know, they talk about your faith creating things and all this. And I'm like, oh, don't, don't, please don't do that, you know, <laughs> because it feeds into the same problem. And then you, when you encounter people of other faiths, you, you feel like their strong faith creates the reality of that faith for them. And it's just this whole, um, you know, contrary wise, biblically, what you're saying right. is so true, right? It, if, if you're believing it, it better be true, not if you're believing it, it is true. Right. So, <laughs> Suddenly becomes so, yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First Corinthians 15. He's like, if it's not factually true, the faith part doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And so that's a pretty big deal. How about, okay, let's talk about line number two. Uh, this one is um, follow your heart. Um, explain like, what is it? What is the thing that the kids are believing? And then how does this affect them? And then how do you work them th out of that? Yes. Well, I mean, most media that they're going to be consuming, you know, like whether it's here on YouTube or whether it's actually on a show that's being streamed somewhere, like everything is going to tell them, you know, follow your heart, be the true you, be the authentic you, you know, just like the phrase that we hear all the time, like you do you, you know, you do you. So our kids are constantly going to hear this lie that their heart is the most reliable guide 
for truth, you know, meaning again, that morality is subjective, you know, like you will find the answer within. I was just last week, I was at Disney World with my whole family and, you know, with my little nephews and niece and like everywhere there's like, I love it there. Like there's this magical music, but then all these lies are just coming. It's like, you're like, if you have a dream, you know, like just chase after it with all you have, you know, like, or you have the power within you. And our kids just hear this all the time. You know, even if they don't say those things out loud, they're absorbing this. But the reason I uh, wanted to address this lie second, you know, as opposed to first is if we actually first cover the difference between objective truths or objective claims that are either true or false, and then subjective preferences, then our kids will be able to see through this lie because they're going to hear it everywhere. You know, just you do you, you follow your heart. Um, But I saw this really quickly with my students that I was teaching third grade at the time and I had taught them the difference between objective claims and subjective claims. And then we started looking at, okay, let's look at some different ways that people view the world. Let's look at different beliefs that people have about morality. And we looked at this idea of, you know, like follow your heart and this one kid in, in my class, he raises his hand right away and he's like, um, excuse me, Mr. Banner, I'm like super confused. And I was like, what are you confused about, Josh? And he was like, okay, so let's say my heart tells me that I need this new video game. And then my dad, his heart tells him I don't need that new video game. And I was like, oh, so are you saying that your heart is going to sometimes tell you something different than somebody else's heart? He's like, yeah, that's like a subjective thing. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. So then what's going to happen? And so we just had a great discussion, you know, about how our hearts, you know, like are going to constantly be in conflict that, you know, like you can't practically, nobody really lives this way. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, they Amen might be following their own hearts, but not everybody else. Right. <laughs> um, so I just found that we need to help our kids see that our hearts are continually steering us in the wrong direction, that we have these subjective whims. And one great way to do this is just to directly address this, just directly address it and, and ask our kids, you know, should we follow our hearts? Like, should you just do you? What do you think about it? And have this discussion and ask them just so that we can first gauge, you know, like, where are they? How, you know, have they absorbed this lie from culture? How deeply ingrained is it? And then to really just give, start giving some hypothetical situations, or it could even be personal examples. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but if I followed all of the whims of my heart this week, I probably wouldn't be doing this live stream because I'd probably be in jail right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like there's so many things that like I in the moment, like when I get frustrated or angry that I want to do that would, you know, like are just clearly not the right thing to do. And kids are able to see this so quickly. Like a lot of times I'll just ask a kid like, okay, what are some of the things your heart has told you to do today? Or, you know, like when you've been playing with your siblings, what sometimes what does your heart want to do? push them, kick them, you know, like call them a mean name um, so that they can just see the logical outworking of this, that our hearts are not reliable guides to truth. You know, like we know in Jeremiah 17 that, you know, God directly tells us this, that our hearts are desperately wicked, you know, and, and right before that, Pat, that verse, you know, like God has outlined, you know, like that when we trust in ourselves when we trust in man, you know, we're, you know, like we're like a dried up tree, you know, as opposed to following him who is the, who is the creator of objective reality. Um, so this is another really important one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's like, I think of the, it's the reversal of Proverbs 3, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Mm-hmm. This is this is trusting in your heart and then 
you're sort of trusting um, the Lord with your heart, like as if my heart is going to even tell me what God wants and who God is. It's all going to come from my heart, like all my my purpose and commitments and decisions are going to flow from my heart, which is my desires. But the biblical bad news, <laughs> it's good news when you realize it's true. It's like, oh, good, I'm glad I was warned. Is yeah, the heart is the heart is like a landmine of dangerous, you know, places and things. And some of the desires are good, and some of the desires are bad. And it's yeah. and I, I'm amazed, Elizabeth. I, I'm I'm sure you are too. I'm sure anybody who's honest with themselves is amazed at how quickly and and easily we can justify wicked behavior oh, just yeah. to, because we want to do it. It's like my imagination goes into overdrive to make it okay. To I remember when I was a kid, this lame story, but. My mom says, be home by the time the streetlights come on, right? That was the rule for uh, for this season of life. I was 23, so I had to be home. <laughs> um, I was no, I was just a little kid. But um, when I was playing, I noticed the streetlights coming on, and I was trying to weigh in my head how much I wanted to not get in trouble versus how much I wanted to keep playing. And I noticed the streetlight directly in front of my house was not on. Now, I knew it was just broken, right? But I was like, technically... <laughs> The street light in closest proximity to my own home is not on. And she said, the street light's coming. So I'll, I'm going to keep playing, right? And I got home so late. And then when I, and, and this was the this was the real bad thing, right? Was I told my mom this. I was like, yeah, well, the street light in front of our house didn't turn on. And she was like, okay. And she just accepted it. <laughs> I probably, oh, wow. I should have got a spanking out there. So definitely. Um, I totally got away with it. I got away with a lot. But um but yeah, the, the danger is like, I'm so good at lying to myself. Like every divorce I've ever seen is a result of someone following their heart. Every yeah. time someone has abandoned some really noble and good task they were doing, they're following their heart. Like it's, our hearts are just really dangerous things. So um, follow your heart. When you deal with kids, before we move on, tell people a little bit about your experience. Like you, you have a, a program that, that I, I think people should seriously consider. If you have kids, that fit, what are the ages for the program from the bottom to top? Because I know you're adding more as yeah. you go here. Yep, right now we have materials for ages four through 14. Four through 14. And if, so if you guys have kids four through 14, please consider it. Go on their website, foundationworldview.com. I'm, I'm not making a penny from this. Like I'm not getting kickbacks for each person who signs up. Like I just purely want you guys to be able to teach your kids. It's not easy. It's not easy as parents even to know how to walk them through this. And Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about your story, like how you got started because this, this whole thing kind of happened organically, right? Yeah, very much so. I did not see my life heading in this direction like seven years ago. Um, so I was teaching fourth grade and then third grade in a Christian school. And the students that were in the school, they came from these great Christian homes. Um, you know, I'm passionate about God's word. I'm passionate about discipleship. So I knew that they were getting a biblically based education all day long. For me, most of them were fairly involved in the churches that they were attending. And several years into my teaching experience, I just noticed my students rapidly absorbing ideas from the culture without any question. Just like one humorous story is one day I was teaching, was using a projector. The projector went on the fritz. I was trying to fiddle around with the wires and I was like, okay guys, do this. Gave them an assignment, fiddling around with the wires. And one of the students goes, man, this is like really stressful guys. We should totally meditate to stay calm. You know, like <laughs> kind of funny. So mm -hmm. I like stop fiddling with the wires and I turn around and like half my class 
is on the floor with their legs crossed and their arms out and they're going like mm. oh, and i was dear. like wow. whoa like time out like okay everybody back in their seats we need to talk about this like when we talk about the word meditation like what you were just doing is not what scripture describes like you were trying to empty your minds this comes from like you know eastern religions and like just mm -hmm. like blank stares on their faces and i saw so many different examples like this where i was like okay what like what am i doing wrong what you know how can I get my kids to think? So I started studying. I started taking a few online classes, doing a lot of reading. At the time, I had no idea what apologetics was, but I started diving into apologetics and worldview. And I was like, okay, this is what my students are missing. They can't critically think through everything they're being they're encountering. Right. So they need these skills. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to teach an after-school class on this. So I got permission to teach an after-school class, and I went and I looked for materials. And I couldn't find anything like at the third, fourth and fifth grade level. And I was like, surely somebody has to be doing something out there. And there was like a few things, but none of them were designed in a way that was actually going to transform the way that kids thought. They weren't right. actually designed from a way that aligned with the way God designed the human mind to learn with sound educational philosophy. So I was like, well, I guess I can start creating some stuff. So I started creating things, ran it by like a friend of mine who had a degree in philosophy and theology just to make sure I was like translating it faithfully. And the students were like completely transformed. Like moms were calling me and were like, um, excuse me, my son wants to pause family movie night and evaluate the character's worldview. And this is great, but I don't know how to do it. So can you help me? Um, and then other teachers were coming down to my classroom and they're like, okay, your students are thinking like more deeply about literature and science and mathematics and history than I ever have. Like, yeah. what are you doing? And I was like, kind of don't know like I'm just giving them these skills right. and they're you know like we're not talking about like mm -hmm. science or math or history in this class and so that was you know it was just so exciting to see the students at my school transformed and that's when people started hearing what was going on they were noticing the change in these students they're like oh great how can we get our hands on this and I was like I'm not a publishing house I'm a third grade teacher like sorry <laughs> um, but eventually after getting several years of those requests I started praying through this and I went back to school got a master's degree in Christian apologetics apologetics from Biola and then eventually stepped outside of the classroom to create resources so that others can just take these resources and implement them with the kids in their life because I know you know most people don't have time to go back to school and you know get a master's in apologetics so love being able to do this and I just love the journey <laughs> that God has brought about. I think it's about. so valuable I'm glad you're doing it. it it the reason why I wanted you to tell your stories because I want people to know like this happened organically there's a okay this is the same as my own YouTube content right like this is just me saying I think there's a need and I think that mm -hmm. I can try to help fill that need and then just watching what God does through it, you know, and and what I want to do is not just tell people what to think. Here's the Christian theology you should believe in, but how to think, right? Like walking right. people through how to think biblically, so that no matter what you encounter, you can you can assess it and consider it and then process it through a biblical worldview. And you're doing this for for kids, respect for young people, but also for their parents. And that's right. what I love about this curriculum. That's why I want to recommend people do it. Can we tell them about the the coupon code you mentioned earlier? Or is yes, that if, yeah, yep, no, that's okay. great. So if you're interested in purchasing one of our curriculums to use in your home, if you just use the coupon code BibleThinker, uh, we'd be love to give you 10% off any license that you purchase. There you go. Just just use the coupon code, right? <laughs> <Bible>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and again, I'm not making anything off nothing. There's no payment Sorry. or exchange of anything, oh, it, <laughs> which is which is fine. God's totally taking care of me, so I'm, I'm good. But um, I just wanted you guys to know there's no motive there except to help you minister to your kids. So how about we talk about lie number three, which which is that uh, love is affirming everything I feel. And this, 
sometimes when you write these out, they sound ridiculous. Yes. Right? But that's because they are ridiculous, but nobody ever says it that way. The lie is absorbed. The lie mm -hmm. is, you get the packaging of the lie. You never open it to think about what the thing is you're really believing. And that's what you're doing. You're saying, hey, let's open this and look at it. So what is this? Love is affirming everything I feel. What, what is that? Yes, and you're right. It's, it's never stated that way. It's just assumed. You know, we hear these things in culture like love is love. You know, like if you loved me, you would do X. Or if you loved me, you wouldn't do X. And this is really deceptive because we as Christians are called to be loving. We are called to love because God himself is love. And so our kids are receiving this message just like we are, that if we are loving, we will never make someone feel uncomfortable. You know, we'll never make someone feel like they are not enough. And so this is just, this is really dangerous because the word love is is being completely redefined, being completely redefined, like so many different words in our culture. Just, we might be talking with someone using the same vocabulary, but be talking about two completely different concepts. Because if we think of, you know, biblically what love is, you know, we know in, in Greek, you know, there's multiple words used to describe what we just use in English, you know, one word love. But if we think about that highest form of love, like the love that God has, you know, among the members of the Trinity, the love that God has for us, it's this self-sacrificing, this thinking of another's best interest and putting that above your own, where our culture has really shifted that, you know, to say that love is a feeling, you know, mm -hmm. love is how I feel when everything is okay. And so if our kids aren't, if we're not careful with training our kids to actually think through what a word means, then they're going to so easily buy into this because the narrative in our culture is that if you tell anyone that what they're doing is wrong, or if you don't celebrate what they're doing, that might actually go against reality, you know, as the way God has, has, a lot, has designed it, then you know what, you are not loving. Um, so what's really important for us to do here is to really get our kids to ask good questions and to pay attention to how words are used. That this is something we're going to need to do some direct training of. We need to directly ask them, you know, like, what is the definition of love? Let's actually look at this. And then look at, okay, how are some people defining love nowadays? This is in some of the materials I've created. We take two whole days just to talk through words with mm -hmm. kids because it's really beneficial to look at definitions and then also look at examples. This and one's look huge. at, okay, when somebody's. Yeah. This yeah. one's huge. When this somebody, is such a big deal, the, the, the whole love question, because it's, it's, again, this is not something just kids are dealing with. And, oh, parents, you're all immune to it. I'm like, you're probably many of you are going, I think I've swallowed that one too. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what are what are some of the the, the spheres where this will impact us when, when we when we come to a decision and we make a wrong choice because we think love is affirming everything I feel? Could you give maybe a couple examples of like real life scenarios? Yeah. So. When, um, I mean, just with everything that's going on with gender and sexuality, so many parents that I talk to, even unfortunately now in the elementary grades, they're having their child is going to school with someone who last year was a boy and is now identifying as a girl or last year was a girl and is now identifying as a boy. And they're expected, you know, just without any question to really celebrate that and, you know, to call that student by his or her preferred pronouns. And so 
you know, the narrative then is, well, if you actually don't believe that he's a boy or, or if you don't actually believe that she's a girl, then you're not loving him or her. And so this is when with our kids, we can go to the definitions of words, but then also anchor this back to the first thing that we talked about, the difference between objective truths and subjective preferences and to talk through, okay, like objectively, you know, what, who is this child? You know, that they were born a boy, they are a boy. Is it the most loving thing for us to do to tell a lie and to to affirm his subjective feelings or her subjective feelings. Now this is going to, this can get wildly complicated, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it involves actually looking at, you know, is, is the school, this classroom, the best place for our child to be because they might be too young, you know, to on a daily basis walk through this, but just right. practically, you know, knowing that our kids are going to encounter this, whether it's at school, whether it's in our own families, our own extended families, but to mm-hmm. actually think through like, is this loving? Does, is this actually right. what love is? And I love, you know, in the example in Mark 10, where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, you know, and he tells him, you know, that he's followed all the commandments. And it says that, you know, Jesus looked at him and loved him and told him this one thing you lack. And he knew that it was the one thing that that rich young ruler needed, but also the one thing that rich young ruler was not going to decide to do. And it says Jesus loved him. You know, that is how Jesus loved him. And that's, that's a really powerful example to give to our kids. Um, especially with this with this lie that we're facing in culture. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I, I think that I almost want to empower people, even kids, by saying, if someone says you're not loving them, that doesn't mean you're not loving them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Parents need to hear this too when, when their kids tell them like, you hate me. And, and that's the, you know, <laughs> that's like the, the trump card because you won't let me do the thing I want to do. You, you hate me, therefore. And the wise parent, the secure parent, the one who understands their worldview can look and say, no, you're just upset because you're not getting what you want. Um, and there's there's an element of that that we need to look at all of our culture and say, yeah, the the um, the affirming everything thing is is silly and strange and mm-hmm. irrational. It, it doesn't make sense of objective truth. And it's also one sided because we're really not affirming everything you feel. We're only affirming things you feel that are in a certain accepted cultural category. Right. So right. I feel that male and female are real, you know, that, that apply to almost everybody as, as male or female. Those are real, like ob- objective physical things. And people are going to say, well, we're not going to affirm what Mike feels right there. <laughs> Forget that. We're not affirming him at all. So you find that it, it's, it's a super inconsistent. That's why it's never presented as a clear doctrine believed by people. Right. Instead, it's just, can, it, you know, it's more presented as like a standard of behavior approval if you if you submit to this standard of behavior disapproval if you don't yeah right and that's another really powerful thing that we can do is train our kids to constantly be asking questions to be asking what do you mean by that you know why do you believe that's true or can you explain more about this to me because a lot of times what they'll face is they'll face somebody wanting them to justify their beliefs and there are justifications for those you know we need to train our kids for that but a lot of times you know these words are just thrown out like you're not loving you know or you know like you're not doing the loving thing and it's like mm-hmm. well what do you mean by loving like several years ago, I was in downtown Chicago and, you know, like a, a gay rights activist was like handing out pamphlets and, you know, I engaged with him and he was like, do you believe in equal rights? And I was like, 
Well, that's such an interesting question. Can you tell me what you mean by equal rights? Because, you know, if I had yeah. said that I wasn't in favor of homosexual marriage, you know, like he would have said, well, you don't believe in equal rights. And it's like, yeah. well, I do believe in equal rights, you know, but I don't believe that that's part of the natural order. I don't believe that's part of God's design. So if we can train our kids to ask questions, there could actually be meaningful discussions, usually not, but sometimes there could be. Yeah. Um, but also for them to be able to see like, oh, it's not me that's not being unloving. It's this idea that's being supported is unsupported. It's irrational. Right, right. Yeah. Then hopefully they have the power to look at the people and be like, oh, you're, you're mad at me, but you're but you're wrong. That's very empowering yeah. <laughs> in a positive way, you know, like you're mad, yeah. but, but you're also wrong. So, all right, let's talk about lie number four, uh, which is that faith is the opposite of knowledge. And again, this is this is something I've heard from non-Christians, especially the atheist community online. But I've even heard it from Christians yeah. many times. And and me, yep. you know me, I'm like banging my head <laughs> on the wall. Like, Please don't say that. Please stop. Like it's it's been very important in my Christian faith my ex experience of following Christ and to stay committed in my faith, mm -hmm. that faith is not the opposite of knowledge. And um, so could you walk us through this one? Yes. And so again, this is one of these things that might not be outright said, but just viewed as like faith is just wishful thinking. Like I was just at Hobby Lobby yesterday, which I love Hobby Lobby, great store, but I was looking at the home decor and you know, like there's so many signs that just say things like this, like with faith, all things are possible. And I'm like, what kind of faith are you talking about? Like, cause I know people that have faith in like really weird things that if they like followed through with it, like they probably die, you know, like with it's faith is not just like this wishful thinking. And we even see this sometimes in Christian, you know, like programming, just as you said, like in Christian circles. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like let's look biblically what faith is. Like, let's actually look. And when we see passages about faith, we're always seeing that God is constantly asking us to trust in him who we cannot see because everything we can see points to him. Like before he gives, you know, in Exodus 20, before he gives his people that, you know, like the Decalogue, the 10 commandments, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery or out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives them, you know, the commands for how they're supposed to live. First, he reminds them of who he is and everything they just visibly saw, you know, for the past several months. Um, so, it's just really important that we directly address this concept with our students because our culture, you know, whether it's secular or unfortunately many times Christians just use faith as this subjective personal opinion about things or this wishful thinking. Last year, uh, Ligonier Ministries came out with their biannual state of theology report, and they found that 41% of evangelical young adults, so that's not including, you know, the 60% that, you know, research has found has already walked away from the church, but, you know, like those who have stayed and the, those who still consider themselves Christians, 41% agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. And it's just like our, our kids are going to be taught to believe, you know, like this is just something that you yeah. that you hope for. It's not something you think through. I actually saw this um, in a I was teaching Sunday school at the church that I was attending back when I lived in Chicago. 
and it was between services and I was out in the coffee area and this little boy comes up to me and he's like, oh no, it's you. And I was like, well, it's great to see you too this morning. <laughs> like, why are you so excited to see me? And he's like, well, I hate it when you're our teacher and seeing you here means you're probably going to be our teacher. And I'm like, what is going on? And I was like, well, why do you hate it so much when I'm your teacher? He's like, because every time I come here, I just say Jesus as the answer and I always get a prize and the teacher's happy except for you. You ask me why Jesus is the answer and you make me think. He's like, you're not supposed to think at church. That's what school is for. And like, I like wow. started laughing and I was like, well, I know you did not mean that as a compliment, but that's one of the best compliments any child has ever given right. me. But I thought like, wow, how sad that he can articulate. I go to school. I turn my mind on. I go to church. I turn my mind off. And that's a lot of times our attitude towards right. faith. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, I, as, a, as a youth pastor, I would go out of my way when I was asking questions for the students to make sure that the answer wasn't Jesus. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't want them, I, it drove me nuts. Now, I, do, I wasn't raised in the church, okay? So I never had that. So like to me, it always felt weird if I see someone who's been, let me, and forgive me if I say this in a clumsy way, but who I'll, I'll say has been churched mm-hmm. in the cultural sense, but I'm not seeing a commitment to Christ. And whenever I see that, I would just be like, what, what am I looking at? What is that? Yeah. Like, I never had that, right? Like, I'm the yeah. only one going to church in my family you know, like when I was a kid. Yeah. So, so I'm like, I, I remember finding out that there was even such a thing as Christian music. And something <laughs> like, I think I was like 17 or 18 when I heard about Veggie Tales. I was like, what? There's like Christian media stuff out there? So all that was very foreign to me. Salty the yeah. songbook. I still I still don't know any of those songs. <laughs> but I've heard people that talk was about weird. It. That was really weird. It's maybe yeah, good you but, skip but that. <laughs> Totally with you on that. And and I think that I, I would want to drive this point home so hard and just tell people, if you have a belief that Christianity, um, that you're a Christian and, and uh, religion doesn't really matter about evidence and objective truth, it's just a matter of opinion, that, that damages the fundamental gospel of Christ. Like, I'm not kidding. It's, it's mm-hmm. so much worse than so many other things that you could possibly do wrong. Because Paul says, like, if Christ isn't actually risen, our faith is in vain. Yeah. It's futile. All of our beliefs don't matter if it's not based on a factual truth of a resurrected Christ. And if you say then that uh, the factual truth of, of it doesn't matter anymore, I don't know if you're even Christian. Like, I don't know that you're not. I don't know what you are anymore. It's so fundamentally different than Christianity that I'm like, it, it's jarring to me. <laughs> like I'm jarred inside to hear that they're doing a poll in a, a, a significant number of Christ, Christians, evangelical Christians, at least by cultural names, are saying this. Oh my goodness, faith being the opposite of knowledge is a very dangerous doctrine that is not from scripture. Yeah, and that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that you just brought up, that's actually what I recommend and what I do with the kids that God has placed in my care that, you know, once they understand this difference between subjective preferences and objective truths, then to read through that passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And just as a side note, most of the Bible is written at a third grade reading level. So third graders are not too young to be diving into scripture, you know, even on their own. So just read this passage with the kids that God has placed in your care and then ask them, okay, with everything we've heard Paul write to the Corinthian church right here, is he saying that Christianity is a faith that's based on subjective preferences or objective 
truth claims and then talk through that and then talk through, okay, so what is he saying that, so these are objective claims. If these claims are objectively false, then what do we do with Christianity? We put it to the side because it's of no value. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are wasting our lives. We need to move on to something else. Where if the objective evidence points to Jesus rising from the dead, then we put our faith, we put our trust in him that the so that they can see and then ask okay so does the bible does it support this blind faith this wishful thinking or does it support this evidence-based trust this evidence-based faith so that they can clearly understand that you know christianity isn't subjective it's not just subjective opinion it's making objective claims and objective claims are either true or false so we have to make a decision either we think the evidence points that way and we place our trust in it or we think the evidence does not point that us that way and we you know we put it to the side right right <clears throat> yeah this affects so many things because it'll kill your evangelism if you think mm -hmm. faith's the opposite of knowledge and all this stuff you you also won't be able to do apologetics you'll be able to give people a reason to believe what you know christianity's saying um also it won't deconversion doesn't matter because mm -hmm. you're just following your heart to whatever belief that you think is going to benefit you and sort of you know when i talk an example of this um from a previous lie would be I talked to a transgender person and I was asking what makes somebody change from being a man to a woman, for instance. So if I, if I want to be a woman, am I a woman now? And then th he, he says, yes, yes, th th then you're a woman now. I said, what about if you go through the sex change now, are you, does that make you a woman? Okay. Yes, that too. I said, okay, but what if somebody takes you and forces you against your will and they do the sex change operation, all the hormones and everything are, have you actually become a woman? Hmm. No, you haven't because you didn't want to. And I was trying to kind of narrow down, right, how we were defining reality. What, right. we're, what we're getting our real making properties from is <laughs> I want, therefore yep. it's true. And it's that applied to um, to religious claims. And then and then number four, you, you bring in faith as the opposite of knowledge and you just gut any religious claims of objective truth value. And all of a sudden, yeah, it kills evangelism who cares about apostasy like, and there's no, and there's no apologetics. Uh, this is, this is dangerous stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, like what you're talking about and why we, why we did truth as the first one, because if we can really ground our kids in the objective nature of truth, then all of these lies become so much easier to tackle. Because as you mentioned, you know, our culture is just saying that it's our subjective understanding that is what makes reality reality where it's that's not true reality is objective i don't get yeah. to play with reality by my feelings by my just wishful thinking right right if you've ever been surprised by anything you know that your beliefs don't form reality mm -hmm. right? when you when you wake up and you and you um you get ready for work and then you start driving to work and you realize it's saturday and you don't have to work that day <laughs> You believed you were going to work. You thought the place was open. You thought it was Friday. You th you believed it with all your heart. You you got up. You lost sleep. You took a shower. You got dressed. You put on real clothes, and, you went up to work. <laughs> and nobody was there because your 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 beliefs and your intentions and your heart has no truth making abilities. It can't just turn reality. And but <clears throat> you know an analogy I like to give. We'll go to number five in a second. But I just I just I love this analogy. I would give it with the students, and I would talk about three guys jumping out of a plane, and this is an objective truth analogy and uh, I say one guy he jumps out of the plane and he believes with all his heart he's gonna fly so he wears a Superman suit 
and he because he, he believes he's gonna fly so he jumps out of the plane with a superman suit another guy jumps out he believes he's gonna go up he's gonna fly up into space and so he brings a space suit right and then the third guy <clears throat> he believes with all his heart he's gonna fall and he'll die if he hits the ground that hard so he brings a parachute what happens when they jump out of the plane? Mm-hmm. And then I just leave silence, right? Just let the kids talk, let them debate it if they need to debate it or whatever. And then finally they're like, yeah, okay, okay. Two of the or two of them die, one of them lives. <laughs> that's, that's what happens. And I said, what's weird is that when people go to the grave, we mm-hmm. think that all of a sudden whatever we believe is going to happen to us. But when we jump out of a plane, we don't think that. So there's, there's this weird fantasy land we enter when we enter into the mm-hmm. religion zone that I don't want to be part of. Like, I don't am interested in that. <laughs> and if I'm going to make up a religion, I'm just going to make up one that suits me better than Christianity does. Seriously. Because I'm not naturally <laughs> inclined to do all the stuff that Jesus is asking me to do. <laughs> but um, anyway, all right, let's, let's go to line number five. So the line number five you have is humans are the product of blind, unguided evolution. And walk us through this. What are you saying? What are you not saying with this one? Yes. So what I'm what I am saying with this one is that this is a claim that's just widely assumed. It's not necessarily argued. Um, and I'm also not saying now I do not, uh, I do not adhere to theistic evolution. When I look at the evidence for, you know, creation, as I understand it, I don't see an evolutionary process being used, but there are some Christians who do think that God used that mechanism to form creation. So I'm not here arguing against that, but I'm saying that when I think one thing that we can all agree on as Christians is that when we we look at the world around us, just as scripture says, it all points to God's design. And so what I'm saying is when we look at the evidence around us, it does not lead to just randomly life forming, you know, out of nothing that it, that we're not just, we're not the accident of different biological product processes, you know, mm-hmm. that we have, we are here with a purpose. And a lot of times what we think of, you know, I Everybody, you know, has heard of evolution. Everyone's heard of Darwin. Everyone, you know, everyone's studied this in science. But a lot of times we think that this theory is just relegated simply to the public school science classroom, where that's not true. That this, you know, this belief so permeates and just undergirds everything else in our society that it, you know, so many different philosophies have sprung up out of it. When we think about even like identity, meaning, purpose like those are everything that we talk about in society even like so much of just like you do you you create your own identity you create your own destiny kind of has sprung up out of some of this philosophy just because if we are the you know the products of blind unguided evolution there is no objective purpose to our life because there has been no design there is no meaning so the only thing that we're left with is to create our own subjective meaning. And also there is no objective value to human life. Like, you know, we might agree or someone might agree like, well, you know, we all agree that we have value. Well, why? Just because we've subjectively as a society Mm -hmm. agreed to that. So, so much of what we're seeing in our society just stems from this belief that there is no objective purpose, that we are these accidental products of these processes of nature. And so what we want to do is we really want to point our kids to see that the evidence in the world around us points to design. And then we also want to help them see the logical outworking of the belief that there is no design. Now, this one 
this lie is one that just from a practical standpoint, especially even with really little kids, it's really easy to address just to help them see the evidence around us. And if you have a Scrabble game or if you have bananagrams or you can even just cut out letters, you know, from printed off from the computer, what I'll do is I'll take two different uh, groups of letter tiles. And before I'm working with kids, I'll just take one group of letter tiles and I'll shake it up in a cup and dump it out on the table. And then I'll take another group and I'll make it spell a sentence. A lot of times I'll do something like um, life contains information or something like that. And then I'll have the child or the children that I'm working with come in and say, okay, like let's be detectives today. Let's look at these two groups of letter tiles. And we'll look at the first one. I'll say, okay, do you see any words in that? Like, do we see any information? I'll be like, oh, I see an I, I see an A. Okay. So we see like one letter words there. Do we see, is it telling us anything? Like, no. Does it look like the letters got here by accident? Like they just got spilled? Or does it look like they got here on purpose? And you know, like really quickly, the kids are like, it looks like they got here by accident. I'm like, okay, well, could they be here on purpose? Like, could someone have taken them and arranged them in exactly that order? Like, okay, yeah. And then we look at the next one and say, okay, like, let's read this. Okay. Life contains information. Does this have, is this telling us anything? Is this giving us any information? Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's a whole sentence. Like, let's look at this. The letters are evenly spaced. You know, there's spaces between the words. It's giving us information and then talk about like, okay, does this seem like it came about on purpose or by accident? You know, and they can really quickly see on purpose. And then we talk about, well, what about on accident? Could these letters have spilled out of the Scrabble game? and fallen like this, you know, and a lot of times kids will say yes and be like, okay, let's try to do it. You know, like, so then you gather the letters, you shake them up, you dump them out. Be like, oh, did we get any words? No, we didn't. Okay, let's try it again. You know, like, and try it five, 10, 15 and be like, okay, like, what if we did this a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times, would we get this much information? No. And then go to the science textbook, you know, that talks about the amount of information there is in genetic coding and talk about, okay, so if in the world around us, we can't get information without there being an intelligent person, what does that tell us about this information in DNA? So that they're seeing like, oh, the evidence around us, you know, like is pointing to, we got here on purpose, that this genetic coding was actually a plan so that they can see that. And then we can take them to scripture you know, and see like, you know, in Romans one, you know, talking about God's invisible attributes, you know, that are clear to us because he's made them clear in creation in order not to see them, we actually have to suppress the truth. Um, you know, then looking at other places like Psalm 19, you know, that just talk about all of creation pointing us towards this designer. So this is a really important one. Um, and then to, to talk about, you know, like, well, what would be, you know, what, what would be different if we got here by accident? And then actually to talk through some of those things. And this is, again, this was something the first time I went through this with students, I was shocked to see how they were able to kind of connect the dots on the logical outworking of this, that two, um, two of the boys who were in my class, they, they were in fourth grade at the time and their teacher was taking them through a novel study that took place during the Holocaust. And they were talking about Hitler's final solution for the Jews in Poland and his hatred for the Jews. And these two boys chimed, piped in, and they were like, you know, I wonder if it wasn't so much hatred for the Jews, but I wonder if it was his belief like about how life started. Because, you know, if we just kind of got here by accident, 
then there really is no meaning to life. And we could kind of help evolution along, you know, if we kind of played around with it. Now, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying like what happened in Germany in the 1920s to 40s is very complicated politically and economically and philosophically, but just that they were able to connect the dots because eugenics, you know, just actually, you know, getting rid of certain groups of un undesirable people does stem from this philosophy, you know, that we Mm -hmm. are the product of blind, unguided evolution. So it's really neat to see how kids can fill in those dots really, really quickly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And so how much do you get into things like, um, DNA and RNA and all, you know, complicated issues like say abiogenesis, um, the origin of life, the, uh, you know, universal common ancestry. Do you, do you get into that kind of stuff? That's a that's a good question, and it's one that we actually receive frequently. So what we do is we just kind of give the basics of looking at just the start of life, and we look more from at like an intelligent design perspective. And so we just strictly look at okay, what is the what is the um, evidence that we find in DNA? What is the evidence that we find in life? And then where does that point to? And so we get into a little bit just behind just genetic coding, but we don't get into a whole bunch of other issues like that. We leave that. What what our goal is, is our goal is to set the foundation that then other subjects and teaching can build on top of so that then they can take what they've learned here Mm -hmm. and then apply that in the science, in whatever context Mm -hmm. they're learning it. Yeah. So it sounds like you're using stuff from like, say, Stephen Meyer or Michael Behe or those guys, maybe perhaps. I mean, they do a lot of like detecting design type stuff that I found very beneficial. And I think it's very easy to break it down to kids because it's so intuitive and natural to detect intelligence behind things. And um, so, yeah, that stuff, that stuff seems pretty good. I, um, I think that's probably one of the more challenging subjects to probably cover with kids and trying to police yourself on how much you'll get into. Because yeah. you, if you want to pretend that you cover all the issues of science with your seven-year-old, <laughs> it's a joke, right? But, right. But if you and can it won't be done well. Principles, yeah. Right, right. And that's one thing that that we encourage, you know, even if people don't choose to use our curriculum, if they're just going to be, you know, working with their kids with their own stuff, we just encourage them to like, okay, seek out what is the main issue that you want to cover, you know, because unless you know, you have someone in your family, you know, who Mm -hmm. is in microbiology, you know, or something like that. It's going to be hard to study these concepts in enough depth to really get an in-depth understanding and to present them well to kids. So just focus in on one thing that you'd really like to learn and dive deep in that rather than getting like, just like a shallow, broad overview of so many questions. That's, that's one thing we really encourage adults to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so the bottom line is to say to the kids, there's evidence here, there's a lot of evidence here, that there's an intentional design in w- when we look around at the universe and we look inwardly at our own biology and all that, and that is giving us evidence for God, and then you go to Romans 1, Psalm 19, and you're like, just like the Bible says. You know? mm-hmm. So I like that a lot, I think that's fantastic. So um, if you guys are interested, we're still have two, two more lies to cover, um, but it's foundationworldview.com, right? That's the website? Correct. Yeah, and you guys can check out the curriculum there. It's it's actually priced because I've looked at online curriculum and I've paid to go through programs and stuff before, but you guys, pricing is really good. So how much is it for a parent to do it? And how much is the coupon code for that we're giving them today? Yeah, so coupon code's for 10%. And 10%. for a family license, it's 175 And that lasts for how long? It lasts for a year. You get to choose your start date. You could buy it now and start it next June if yeah. you wanted. <laughs> yeah, and, that's, and how many lessons is that uh, in a year? 
So we have 30 lessons. So our goal is we know that parents especially are really busy with all the things that they have to do with their kids and we wanted to make it manageable. So if you do it once a week for 30 weeks at maximum, it takes you an hour. So a school a school year is generally 40 weeks. So we give you a school years plus a little bit of wiggle room for not being able to cover it here and there. <laughs> this is what excited me about it. When you gave me these details a while ago, I was like, oh, that's that's totally doable. Like that's, that's, that's doable for a parent who's busy. You just sit down for one hour. You guys watch the video stuff. You, you talk to your kids. It doesn't take a ton of prep for the parent to do. And then you have, you know, a year to do 30 sessions. That's that's very doable. And the price is, is really low, actually, considering it's like $5 or something each or something like that. I, I did the math and now I don't remember. But let's talk <laughs> about number, number six, uh, lie number six. This is a very interesting one. I'm interested to hear what you're going to say about it. You are the one you've been waiting for. So I actually, this line did not come from me. I lifted it out of the second Frozen movie. It's like the climax of the second oh, Frozen movie when Elsa. I haven't Elsa's, seen that one yet. <laughs> it's okay. It's not worth your time. But <laughs> um, but Elsa's mom tells her basically, you are the one you've been waiting for. And so this lie isn't said many places in that in those words outside of Frozen Two, but it is told in so many different ways in our culture um, that you know, like you are enough. You know, like look within for the strength that you need. You can be anything that you want to be. You determine your destiny. Basically, you can rescue yourself because it's it's this view that, okay, the problem is out there. Like all of this guilt and shame and fear and brokenness that you feel, it's just this pressure from the outside. You have all that you need within. And I actually even see this a lot of times within the Christian community. Like I, I saw a, fo a Facebook post recently from, um, from someone that I knew, a mom of a former student, and she had posted how like written on the bathroom wall in the Christian high school was this, you know, it just said like, you are enough. And I mean, like granted of all the things people could be writing on the bathroom wall, that's really not that awful. <laughs> so like, yay, <laughs> yay for the win there. But she had just written, she was like, I, she was like, I love this, like hashtag truth. And then I was like, really truth, like you are enough, like that's kind of the exact opposite of the gospel <laughs> that, yeah. you know, like that we are created in God's image. And so we have this value that no one can strip from us, but we are also irreversibly broken. You know, like we cannot rescue ourselves. Like the price was God himself, <laughs> you know, bearing our sin. And so this is a lie that that, you know, we really want to make sure that we're covering with our kids because from the biblical worldview, like, yes, we can wholeheartedly affirm, like, you are unique, you are special, not because of your gifting, not because of your looks, not because of the things that you do, but because you bear the image of the holy God, like you are incredibly valuable. But then we're going to depart from culture in that we're going to say, no, the problem, like, yes, there are problems out here that do affect us, but the primary brokenness is within. And the only hope, the only solution for that is Jesus. So we want to do two things. We want to make sure that we help our kids see their objective value and the grounding for that value and their internal brokenness. Um, so this is, again, like keep going back to line number one, because everything, you know, like everything is grounded in that understanding of objective truth. And just talk about like, okay, so every human, does every human have value, you know, and asking our kids that and giving them an opportunity to talk through that and then ask, where does that value come from? Is it like an objective truth or is it a subjective feeling? And so then 
talking through, okay, like if we believe that we got here accidentally, you know, if we're just the product of blind, unguided evolution, we got here accidentally, where does that value come from? Mm -hmm. It doesn't come, like there is no objective value. It's just subjective. Like maybe our society, (laughs) we all agree, like, yeah, humans all have value, but that's still subjective because then when society changes its opinion, what are we going to do? Then there's not going to be that value anymore. We can also help them really just like see, you know, like in Christianity that this is grounded, you know, objectively by taking them directly to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, you know, that talks about humans being created in the image and likeness of God, that this is something that is so powerful in the Christian worldview that we want them to see. For those who hear that their value comes from themselves, one of the big problems with this on a real experiential level is that a lot of people don't feel that valuable. And so they bolster themselves up with with confidence makers, you know, so whether it's, you know, trying to get people to like their appearance or like the way they act or find some skill they're good at that they can kind of make their identity or maybe find a niche identity. Usually it's certain identities have a certain kind of approval. So like punk rockers a little, little while back, you know, there was, it gave you like a niche. It gave you like a person that people to belong to and you could mm-hmm. find your, your, your value in that. And so it kind of creates a sense of confidence or many people, they find their confidence in their, their transgender, homosexual, lesbian identity, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And these are, to me, they're kind of confidence makers because confidence is my value. Mm. And so I feel like I really, really need that confidence. And Christianity kind of takes a whole different approach and says, you you actually feeling insufficient is part of what causes you to be dependent upon the Lord. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to fix that. You don't have to fix the fact that you don't feel like you're enough. That's okay. Neither am I. Jesus is enough. God's enough. Your value ultimately comes from him. So that's unstained by your your not enoughness <laughs> and <laughs> and your and your and your confidence is in Christ and your boasting is in Christ and your comfort is in Christ and your mm. weakness makes you even more dependent on him. So what Paul says, I've learned to rejoice in my infirmities. I've learned to to rejoice about my weaknesses because then the power of Christ can rest upon me. And he looks up and he's like, my whole ministry, it's all glory to God. Oh, wh- look at what, what how wonderful mm. God is. And so this to me is a healthy value and a healthy confidence it's a confidence placed in someone else that bolsters up your own courage that's not based right. upon your self-evaluation. And, and that, to me, is so valuable and so good. And, and it's hard to give it to people who feel that what you're really doing is you're robbing them from their mm. sense of value because you're telling them that they're not enough. Right. You're, you're taking my value away. And I'm like, no, that never gave you value anyways. <laughs> you're just creating psychosis. Like, all you're doing yeah. is creating all kinds of, like, like weird psychological problems for yourself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we can't bear the weight of that because as you said, you know, like when we're anchoring that in Christ, you know, like and in our identity in him and in being image bearers of God, like God is the only one who can bear that weight, you know, like we can't, that's just like crushing, um, you know, so yeah, just praying that as we evangelize that people see the truth and the beauty of the gospel and just that that, you know, like God is the only one who's sufficient right. to bear that weight. Yeah. Um, I'm not the one I've been waiting for. I'm not good enough. I'll never be enough. I will never be enough. But by the grace of Christ, I'm given the courage and hope to press on, to seek and serve him, and to know that my ultimately to me, the, my enoughness comes at the glorification when, when we're entering into God's kingdom, we have a re- resurrection, and, and uh, we're given, you know, this corruption must put on incorruption and all that. Until then, I'm just learning how to be not enough and for him to be enough. 
and that's right. an incredible character growth thing. Um, and I feel like the youth are especially prone to this because the older people tend to be, they've gone through so many humbling experiences mm. that, that they, they just can't have that kind of shallow arrogance as easily <laughs> <laughs> as the youth can because yeah. they just, they do, they tend to, you know, they just don't see, they don't get it. And, it, and they will, when they're older, they'll be like, man, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. Right. Back then. <laughs> well, but, that's uh, also, I mean, that that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we be wise in not sheltering our kids completely from difficulty. I know I'm, I'm not a parent, so I don't know the emotional struggle and difficulty that is, you know, firsthand of allowing our kids to walk through difficult things, but by allowing them to walk through challenges and to walk through struggles, that's part of what this does. Does, you know, is teaching them to rely on the gospel, you know, like to rely on Christ, that they are not enough, that they do not control their destiny. You know, like, yes, we make decisions that are going to affect the way that our life is going to go, but ultimately we are not the ones that are in control of that. So that's really important that we don't just smooth the road out completely for our children. Yeah, yeah. And, and let me just remind everybody that the value of what Elizabeth is talking about and the things that we're talking about, these seven lies, is that what they do is they give, you know what I keep thinking of, it's kind of a weird analogy, but of diagnostic tools. Like these are the, this is the way you assess a problem. So I used to work at a computer place assembling computers and I would do some kind of tech stuff like hardware, you know, checking to make sure hardware is working. And at one point I went to a person's house, right? And, or their business, excuse me. And they, their computer wouldn't work. We had built the computer and installed it for them. And I start, you know, one of the things you do, you start unplugging everything. And then you boot up the system and you see if you get the beep for the memory check and all this. And you're like checking to see, is it working, right? And I boot up and it works. So then one by one, I start plugging back in all of the stuff that was previously plugged into the system. The monitor, the keyboard, the mouse, the printer. Through the pro process, I found out the printer was keeping the computer from functioning. This is a really weird problem. Like wow. this is not normal. But the, <laughs> the, with the printer plugged in, it wouldn't boot properly. And so then we ended up like doing, I forget what it was, it was many years ago, like whether it was just drivers or something, we, we ended up fixing the problem. What this program does is it kind of like unplugs everything, so to speak, <laughs> and then gives the ability to sort of put back in these ideas, um, how do you see value, how do you see truth, how do you um, see confrontation, see disagreement, things like this. And then you find out where the problems are and you address those issues and then it can like boot properly in my, mm -hmm. in my analogy so your kid's brain can be can be clear and, and thoughtful and biblically minded so right let's talk and about even it. sometimes just to to know you know even know where do we need to dive in deeper yeah. you know that we're going to be covering all these things but where do we need to camp out and where is our kid really struggling and where are they not believing truth like that's it's really important just for those things to come to the surface yes yes so Oh, the value of it is really big, and I'm really grateful you guys are doing it. So what's lie number seven, the last lie? What is that lie? Um, a good God wouldn't judge. <laughs> that this this is one that I didn't, I wish I had recognized earlier on in my teaching. Um, 
and I didn't recognize it till later, but our kids are con- just like we are. They're constantly hearing the message, don't judge. It's wrong to judge. Who are you to judge? And the first time that I realized that this was an issue, even with my third graders, because I thought like, oh yeah, I'm hearing this all the time. But I mean, my gosh, they're eight years old. They're not hearing this yet. One day, one afternoon, I was teaching handwriting and I was walking around and I was correcting, you know, my kid's handwriting. And one of my students, as I was correcting, let's say it was the cursive letter J. I don't remember what letter it was, but I was like, oh, you know what? Actually, you made this J backwards. You need to go this way. She looks up at me and she goes, don't judge me. And I was like so taken aback. I like burst out laughing and I was like, okay, let's let's take a step back here. Let's talk about this. And I was like, is there a right way to make a letter J? And she's like, yeah. I was like, okay, then are there some wrong ways? Yeah. Okay. So it's objective. Um, as your teacher, is it my job to help you make it correctly? <laughs> yes. So I do need to judge your letter J. Um, but this is something that our kids just really quickly absorb. But now just with the prevalence, you know, over the past five, 10 years of progressive Christianity, that the lie has gone even further that not only are we not to judge, but if God was a good God, if he's a good and loving God, then he won't judge that God won't judge. And now, I mean, on, on the surface level, this sounds appealing, you know, because we're just so used to hearing don't judge. It sounds like, yeah, of course, God is going to be loving. Of course, he's going to be compassionate. Like, of course, he's not going to judge We're we're buying into those false definitions of love and compassion. Because this, you know, like this idea of a good God not judging, you know, it's not supported biblically and it's not even just supported by reality in the world around us. Like think of a, you know, like think of somebody who's on trial for rape, you know, like someone that like violently raped someone else and the judge just sitting there and saying, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to take it easy on you this time. You know what, just don't do this again. Like, I mean, can you imagine like the person and their family who was like, you know, like brutally raped and then now this rapist is just left, you know, to continue, you know, harming other people. Like a good judge wouldn't do that. And so what we need to do is we need to directly address this with our kids is we need to help them see that judgment, that, that just judgment is both good and it's loving. So what we need to do again, we need to circle back to the definition of words. It's really important we get our kids in the habit of asking, what does this word mean? You know, what does this person mean when they use this word? And so looking at, well, what does it mean to be good? What would it mean for God to be good? You know, like, and looking at biblically, it means that to be morally perfect, you know, in that, in that term. And so then, okay, if God is perfect, would a perfect being judge? Now, a really practical way to do this, like a lot of these things, like philosophically, our kids are just going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. So just get really practical. So play, you can either play a board game or you can play a game out, you know, like a game outside in your yard and have one of your kids not follow the rules. Like tell them specifically, like, I want you to do whatever you want in this game. You know, like as long as you don't, you know, physically hurt someone. Like I want you to do whatever you want. You don't even have to ask. There's always a kid. (laughs) Somebody's going to do it. (laughs) Um, But just just do that. And then you as the ref don't call anything, you know, and like kids are going to get so frustrated because we have this innate sense of justice that like this is the rule and you didn't follow it and you're in charge and you need to do something about it. And so don't let it go on too long because there could be real anger issues. (laughs) But, you know, like stop it and then debrief and talk about what just happened you know, okay, so there were these rules, there was a right way to play this game, and this person didn't play by them. And then what did I do? Oh, was I a good judge in this game? Was I a good ref? 
Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> I wasn't. And so then to take them back to scripture, you know, like in passages of scripture that talk about judgment, you know, in Matthew 25, when Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats, you know, in second Peter, just talking about the day of the Lord coming, but that God is, he's not slow to keep his promises as some consider slowness, but he, he desires that we'll come to repentance. So God is a just judge and he also made a way for us to be forgiven and he wants us to be reconciled to himself. So this is just a really important one because our kids are going to continually hear in culture, (laughs) you know, not to judge. I think, um, another fun exercise you could add to that would be if, if one team in particular is cheating, and you as, you as the judge, you know, as the coach or whatever, the person who's the arbiter of rules could ask them to all raise hands. Who wants me to step in and make a judgment here? Who doesn't want me to step in and make a judgment like here? That. And you'll watch the violating team raises their hand. I don't want you to. The team that's been wounded, I do want you to, right? And then vice versa, this will probably keep happening back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, until you hopefully have kids that are just raising their hand going, yeah, we just need, we just need it. Because what I find is that... Um, the people who think that the justice system is the most messed up are usually the people who are in prison as a result of the justice system. Now, I'm not saying it's not messed up. I'm not pretending it's perfect. God's perfect. Our justice system is, of course, involves a bunch of humans, and we're, we're the way we are. So, um, yeah, so it's got problems. But the people who kick the most against judgment are those mm-hmm. who realize that it would fall upon themselves. And I feel like this is a big deal here. A, a good God wouldn't judge is is also coupled with this sense that people have of like, I really don't want to be judged, you know. And then let's yeah. tie it all together, right? And and I am the one I've been waiting for, so I'm I'm actually a lot better than 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 what this Bible seems to say that I am. Plus, truth is, you know, it's not really objective; it's more subjective. And my faith can kind of create my reality, and so I'm going to believe that God won't judge me because I want to believe that I'm a good person because. A good God in my version of good, which is perfectly acceptable, wouldn't judge. And then all of a sudden you have like what I would call pop Christianity or pop religion, kind of world culture type mm-hmm. religion. That's just a bunch of um, it's it's the old picture of the guy picking himself up by his own bootstraps. Like he grabs his he grabs his. <laughs> it's funny, you know, it's an old saying because it uses the phrase bootstraps. Like yes. what is even a bootstrap? <laughs> what's a what's a I guess shoelaces? I don't know. So he grabs his own shoelaces. He's lifting himself up off the ground. Like that's what all of these lies end up resulting in. Yeah. Um, except he's not actually off the ground. He's just trying to convince himself he's off the ground. <laughs> yeah. His yeah. feet maybe. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Foundationworldview.com. You guys can go check it out. I hope you will. The, the, the coupon code for you 10% off is from, is use, use the word Bible thinker, one word there, Bible thinker. And um, Elizabeth Urbanowicz, thank you so much for joining us. Is there any, any last encouragement you want to offer or word of advice maybe to parents and people in the audience? Well, I just want to encourage them that the fact that they're watching this means that they care. (laughs) And that's a really important thing that God, you know, God entrusting you with a child and with their discipleship is a a weighty matter. So I would just encourage you to continue seeking God because that's going to be one of the primary, you know, influencers in your own child's life. And then to really be intentional about making sure that they understand the objective truth claims of the Christian worldview. Amen. Amen. Have have hope. It is not time to despair because of the darkness. It is a time to mm. shine because you're the light. And the harder it is, the the harder we have to wake up and pay attention to these things. And it might mean being tired 
and committing to doing a little bit of extra work, but it's actually not much. I mean, one class 30 times a year for an hour, like 30 hours a year. Like that's, I think that's doable. I think that's doable. So thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Lord bless you. I'll be with you on Friday for another Q&A. We're going to do take, tackle your questions, which you've probably added several in the comments that I was unable to look at today. So we'll tackle that on Friday and I look forward to it.